Good morning. I'm so excited to be with you. Uh, as Pastor Will said, my name's Chad Lowe. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Village Church. I'm so thankful to be here. If you're new with us, welcome. If you could do me a favor and fill out that Connect card, we would love to get to know you. We have a gift for you, um, and we hope you have a great Tri-Village experience. We are one big family here, and you being here means that you are part of our family. It's a dysfunctional family for sure. It's a messed up family, but we're a family all the same. And so we are so, so glad you are here. Um, we've been saying this for a while now. Um, for all of you here, you are welcome, but not just that. You are wanted and you are needed. You are welcome, you are wanted, and you are needed. You make up this church, and we are so thankful that you're here. I get the privilege of wrapping up the, the last um, sermon in a, in a four-week series called Hidden Christmas. Hidden Christmas is a sermon series based on a book by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas, um, and where we're looking at the, the realities of what Christmas is, because we, we believe that in our culture, we've lost the true meaning of what it is to be Christmas. Now, you might think, Chad, Christmas is already gone. It's over. We, we finished and celebrated Christmas. Now we're focused on the new year. Well, Yes, that's true, but we believe that Christmas, that the story of Christmas is relevant to us now, um, and that this passage that we're actually going to look at today is one that's widely overlooked, massively overlooked, but it's essential to the story of Christmas, um, and it's essential to our lives today. So I'm excited to be able to share with you uh, this lesson from Hidden Christmas. We are going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you do open up to Luke chapter 2. That will also be on the screen um, behind me. Um, you can turn on your Bibles if you're into the electronic digital phone Bible. But Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, um, we're going to be going through from 25 through 35. And it says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who is righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations." A light revealed to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said this to Mary, his mother. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we speak your word, as we, as we read from what you have for us, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move through my words, that it wouldn't be me speaking, but it would be you, God. God, if it isn't me speaking, then we're, I'm wasting everyone's time. So Lord, we pray that you show up, that you are here, and that this is your moment, this is your word, giving you all the glory. God, I pray that as we see the truths of your word, as we see the declarations of Simeon to Mary and Joseph, the declarations over you and your mission, God, that it would change our lives, it would change our hearts, and Lord, that we would live differently out of a spirit of love for you. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
So we're going to be looking today at the hidden cost of Christmas. We've looked at the genealogy of Jesus. We've looked at Joseph. We've looked at Mary. And now we're seeing these declarations that Simeon makes over Jesus in the temple. And so we're going to look at the hidden cost, and we're going to look at it through three different points. We're going to see that if you want to put this on the screen. We're going to look at the peace of Christmas. We're going to look at the conflict of Christmas, and we're going to look at the cost of Christmas. Now, it might seem weird. A lot of times when we look at Christmas, we look at the good things, the peace, the the silent night. We look at the fact that Jesus came in in swaddling clothes in the manger. We look at the celebration of Christmas. But Christmas, as much as it's about salvation, it's also about suffering. As much as it's about peace, it's also about conflict. It's grace and judgment. And a lot of times we only focus on the one and neglect the other. And so in this passage, what we see is that the first part of it is widely known. It's incredibly well known in the Christian circles and among churches. But the second part of Simeon's declaration is vastly unknown. It's rarely ever preached on and it's rarely ever talked about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at it. We're going to dive in. And so we're going to see the peace, the conflict, and the cost. So starting with the peace, the peace of Christmas. We're going to look at it through two different things. The peace of Christmas. Peace is both possible and peace is accessible. Peace is possible and accessible. Some of you might be sitting here today feeling like there's no peace in your life. You feel like your life is all conflict. You identify with the conflict side of peace. and You're like, amen, brother, I feel you. Some of you may be feeling like life is bliss. It's fine. And you're peace. You're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Christmas should be about peace. Well, I want to tell you today that peace is not only about Christmas, peace is possible and it's accessible for us. So how is it possible? Peace is possible because what we see here is Mary and Joseph are at the temple. Why is that important? What does that matter? Well, we see that throughout Jesus's life, he actually fulfills the letter of the Levitical law, the law of Moses, to the T, to the letter. If Jesus didn't fulfill the law of Moses, then he would not fulfill the sacrifice in his death. If there is anything in his life, if there is any discrepancy in his life, then we could not be saved. And so what we see is in his life that peace is possible because faithful men and women through the Spirit of God have brought Jesus to fulfill the law. So what we see in that is that God created someone to cause a census to be taken so that Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem, so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. We see that he was circumcised on the eighth day and named. He was named Jesus. So they fulfilled the Levitical law. They fulfilled the the prophecy of Jesus. But then here, Mary and Joseph are in the temple to make atoning sacrifices on behalf of Jesus and Mary, fulfilling the law of Moses. Jesus wasn't going to walk to Bethlehem as a baby. Jesus wasn't going to walk into the temple as a baby. But God used, through his spirit, faithful men and women to fulfill the law, so that peace could be possible. If Jesus didn't fulfill the law, there would be no peace. There would be no peace at all. So we see that peace is possible, but this is what I think is wild about this. Before I want to go to peace is accessible, as I was studying, I was thinking about this. Mary and Joseph, like we said, salvation encompasses suffering, peace encompasses conflict. Just look at Mary and Joseph for a second here. So Mary and Joseph, assuming that they were going to be the the parents of Jesus, they took on a great deal of conflict, a great deal of suffering. So you look at Joseph. Joseph has to look like the illegitimate father of this kid who isn't his, 
right? He either looks like an idiot because he thinks that somehow Mary miraculously had a baby without cheating on him, right? So to all of his friends, he looks like, oh yeah, Joseph, great. You, you're right. He's the perfect child. Your kid is the perfect one. Good job, Joseph. Or he's a liar. He, he's a liar because he slept with his soon-to-be wife before they were married, disobeying the law. So you look at Joseph, he's assuming um, a great deal of social conflict by assuming the role of parent of Jesus. But then also you look at Mary, and we talked about this on Christmas Eve. Mary, she takes on the role of being an adulterer, or she takes on the role of being a fornicator. And so as they go to the temple, you might not see the significance in this, but as they go to the temple, this is why it's wild. Just imagine the baggage that they have walking into the temple, having this stigma on them, walking to the one place where they could actually experience justice upon them as sinners. The people who could enforce the the rightful consequence if they were adulterers or they were fornicators, they could experience the wrath of the law in this place. So they're walking into the temple to be obedient, but can also receive rejection by walking into the temple. Peace is possible because faithful men and women led by the Spirit were willing to take on sacrifice, were willing to take on conflict so that our Savior could fully and totally fulfill the law. Maybe you in your life, you've seen moments where you've tried to walk out and step out in faith and you've wondered when God is going to show up, when you're going to feel the assurance of the obedience that you're giving. And this is what happens for Mary and Joseph. It's beautiful. We see that, and starting in verse 29, they walk in, just, I'm picturing that they're just apprehensive, maybe a little fearful, but they're walking in and they see this man come up to them grab their baby and say, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in what? Peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. They get the assurance, they get the confirmation that this is the Messiah. The consolation of Israel, the hope that they've been looking for. They get the assurance that peace is possible. But not only is peace possible, peace is accessible. Peace is accessible because what we see in here is actually who this peace is for. Who this peace is for. Peace is for the poor and the outcast. And what we're going to see is, it's, it's wild. As I was studying this, we see that Jesus in his life, his purpose, his mission, his ministry is displayed right here in the birth story, in the baby story of Jesus. It's for the poor and it's for the outcast. So first it's for the poor. We see this in verse 22 through 24 by the sacrifice of Jesus, or by the, the sacrifice that Jesus and Mary were going to at the temple. So this is what happens if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew and you were a Jewish woman who gave birth, um, there were certain things, there were certain regulations, there were certain um, practices that you needed to do to become clean. You were considered ceremonially unclean by giving birth. So 
In order to become clean, you had to go to the temple, you had to offer a sacrifice to be a purification offering to become clean, to be declared ceremonially clean. And so that's one reason why Mary was there, to become ceremonially clean. The second reason was for the child. The child, it was a dedication offering, a redemptive offering to claim back the child as yours. Because what happened is any firstborn male born to a Jew was declared God's. This is to represent God who saved Israel out of Egypt and declared them as, their first, as his firstborn son. So with that, any firstborn uh, animal or human was declared God's. So if it was an animal, it was sacrificed. And if it was a human, they made a sacrifice of redemption, of dedication to God. So Jesus was being dedicated to God as his son which is wild here. But here's the thing. Jesus is God, so he didn't really need the redemptive part of it. It, He wasn't getting his sins paid for. But when you got there, the, the offering, the sacrifice required a dove and a lamb. But if you were poor, you could do two doves. And that's what we see that happens here. Mary and Joseph paid with two doves, showing that Jesus was born into the poorest of poor families. He was born in the most backwoods town of Israel, So we see that the glory of God took on the most humility of man so that the lowest of man could experience the glory of God. We see that Jesus was born into the the broken, poor, incapable, so that the broken, poor, and incapable could be elevated with God. So we see at the very beginning, at the birth, going into the temple, that Jesus was for the poor the broken, and the outcast. The second thing we see about this is the declaration that Simeon makes in the temple. Because he declares this thing in the temple courts. He he says this declaration of peace, this declaration of salvation in the temple courts. Now, the way that the temple worked is there were different um, entry points in the temple. There were different like layers, levels. There were clearances that you would have to make to get there. So the innermost part of the temple was the holy of holies, right? But the outermost was the court of the Gentiles. So God-fearing non-Jewish men and women could go to the temple to worship God, but they could only go as close as the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further. The next layer, the next level, the next court was the court of women. Jewish women could go there. Now, Jewish men could as well, but this, is the, this was the furthest in that Jewish women could go. This is where Simeon meets Mary and Joseph. Why is this important? It's important because the declaration that Simeon makes, he makes in front of who is considered to be the lowest in society. He makes in front of women and Gentiles, not the religious leaders, not the priests. He makes in front of the women and the Gentiles. And this is what's interesting. This is what he says. Any devout, any God-fearing Jew would know about national salvation. They'd be preaching towards the salvation of Israel. They'd be proclaiming that. Salvation is for Israel. They would never, ever, ever, not even ever, ever reference Gentiles in the same sentence as Israel when talking about salvation. Never would you do that. Even though in Isaiah, God says that he's coming to save the Gentiles, it doesn't matter. They focused on national salvation. You would never, ever, ever list Gentiles and Jews as being saved in the same sentence. But Simeon not only does that, he lists Gentiles first. He lists Gentiles before he lists the Jews. So he's in the court of women saying I, that Jesus has come to bring salvation for the outcast, for the poor, for the broken. 
His purpose here is to bring salvation for the lost. He didn't come for those who are religious. He came for those who are rejected. Jesus didn't come for those who thought they were righteous. He came for those who knew they were broken. The birth of Jesus, the story of Jesus, shows the redemption, that peace is not only possible, it's accessible for us, for you and for me. So if today you need to hear that you can have peace with God, it is possible because of the sacrifice of the Son. If you need to know that you can have peace with God, it's possible because Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. It's possible because salvation was proclaimed to the broken and the outcast just like you and me. So we see that peace isn't just possible. We see that, the, that the, the peace of Christmas, now that we've seen the peace of Christmas was possible and acceptable or accessible, now we're going to look at the, the conflict of Christmas. Now this is the part, this is the part that gets a little um, tense because we like peace, but we don't like conflict. We want salvation, but we don't want suffering. We want grace, but we don't want judgment. And a lot of us don't believe that I necessarily need conflict in order to have peace. But that's not what Scripture says anywhere. That's not what Scripture says anywhere. Think about this. Think about this for a second. So peace. Peace, the reason that conflict is essential to peace is because peace identifies a problem. In order for for there to actually be true peace, the problem has to be dealt with. It has to be eradicated. So peace does whatever is necessary. It embraces conflict in order to remove the problem so that peace can actually last. If you don't have conflict, you won't have peace. Let me illustrate it to you like this. So let's say I went into the the doctor for a routine physical, a, a checkup, right? And they finish all the stuff, and the doctor says, hey, I have really good news for you. You don't have cancer. And I would look at him going like, okay, was, was, that, a, was that a concern of yours? <laughs> like, were you worried about it? He's like, no, I just wanted to tell you, good news, you don't have it. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Appreciate that. I probably wouldn't go see that doctor again. Um, but what we see is that that good news doesn't really affect me because there's no conflict within me, right? That good news, yeah, it's great, but... but Who cares? It wasn't a worry of mine. What we see is that good news can't be great news unless there's bad news. Good news can't be great news unless there's bad news. If I was walking in, let's say the the situation was different, I was walking to the doctor knowing we both knew that I had cancer. And I walked in and he said, hey, Chad, bad news, the cancer will take your life. But good news, we have a treatment for it. We can do this. Now, it still wouldn't be great news yet. That's good news, but it wouldn't be great news yet. Why? Because I would have to embrace the conflict of the surgery, of the treatment, of being cut open in order for the cancer to be removed. I have to embrace the conflict before it's great news. Otherwise, it's just good news for someone else. If I don't experience conflict, if we don't experience conflict, Peace is only good news for someone else. It's not your good news. It's not your peace. So conflict is essential. Conflict is essential when it comes to peace. And this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at two things from this. So the conflict of Christmas, there's conflict among people and conflict within people. Conflict among people and conflict within people. First, let's look at the conflicts among people. So we see this in the second declaration that Simeon makes to Mary. Starting in verse 34, he says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, the first part, if I saw Simeon and I heard the first blessing, like, oh, he's the salvation to all nations, Jews and Gentiles, I'd be like, amen, that's my kid. Then I hear this part and I'm like, the falling and rising, there will be the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and there will be a sword that pierces your own soul. I'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Simeon, you could have stopped. Like, it's fine. You're just this crazy old man running in the temple holding my kid. Like, what are you talking about? But we see that Jesus, the purpose, the mission of Jesus is actually going to create conflict among people. The first thing we see is the falling and rising of many. He's going to be a sign for people. What he, what he means by that, what that is, is that Jesus is literally going to be a signpost. If you're traveling down the road and it forks, the sign gives you direction as to which way this way is going and which way this way is going, right? So Jesus is literally a sign, a fork in the road that now we have to deal with. You have to make a decision. You can't be neutral anymore. He's saying, I've come to separate. That's offensive. How dare anyone tell you how you should live your life? How dare anyone tell you how you should make decisions? How dare anyone tell you what path you should go on? But we see that Jesus is coming to divide. And so that division is going to cause people who follow him and embrace him as their Lord and people who don't. It's going to be the falling and rising. It's going to be life and death, heaven and hell. It's declaring his purpose. Now, the reason we know that it's talking about life and death, heaven, hell, is because the word that's used for rising is a Greek word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And the only, the only way it's ever used throughout the rest of Scripture is for the word resurrection. He's come to resurrect. He's come to give new life. He's come to restore. And with that, there's death. So we see that there's a, there's, a, there's a separation, there's a distinction, there's now a fork in the road. And so today, we, just like they, are left with a decision. We can't be neutral. We are either with Jesus or we're against him. We're either for Jesus or we're not. We either follow Jesus with our lives or we reject him. And here's the thing. Those who go on the path of Jesus are going to look like fools to the rest of the world. Those who go on the path of following Jesus are going to look incompetent. They're going to look ignorant. They're going to look primitive, narrow-minded. Because the, the world thinks that we're all pursuing the same destination. They think that the meaning is to find happiness, satisfaction, and security. And they're going, you're going this way to perceive that? No, no, no. Satisfaction, happiness, and security is in life. It's right here, right now. Make the most of it. Soak it up. Do what you want. You're the king of your world. But what we see, it's not about happiness, it's about heaven. It's not about satisfaction, it's about our Savior. And so as we go this way, if we follow Jesus, if we love Jesus, and we're pursuing this path, we see that we have a greater end. We have a greater story. We have a greater destination. And so that's what Jesus is coming to do. And so what's going to happen, just by living for Jesus, there's going to be conflict in your life. Some of you might go, amen, I feel you, that's absolutely right. And other of you might go, I don't know, I still don't know, I still don't think that's, that, that's what's going to happen. But you know what, light always exposes darkness. 
We see that in, in the book of John, and the darkness doesn't like to be exposed. So by you living a life following Jesus, it's going to create conflict. So think about it like this. In your workplace, if you are trying to be moral and you're trying to live with integrity and you're trying to do your job to the best of the ability that glorifies God, it's going to cause problems. When people try to cut corners, when people try to take shortcuts, when people try to mismanage money or not properly declare certain things on taxes or whatever, and you don't, you're not going to be seen as a team player. When you're working on a project with a team and you notice a pretty significant error that might have implications for your client, and your team says, no, 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 it's going to create more work for us. Let's just, let's just present it. And you go, no, I can't do that. You're not going to be popular. You're not going to be someone that people like. Just living for Jesus and living in a moral and a life of integrity, you are going to have conflict in your workplace. For those of you who are students, you're going to have this in school. You might have a friend who's really close to you, but letting them cheat is only going to cause you pain. But you not letting them cheat might cost you your friendship. Not being willing to do certain things or say certain things or act a certain way might not make you a popular person. It's going to create dissension. But this is one where I think it hits a lot of nerves is with family. If you've ever, uh, if you came to Jesus at some point in your life um, and the rest of your family is not a believer, if you've ever tried to pray with a family like before a meal, it's awkward. It's like, it's really awkward. It's like, hey, can I pray for this meal? It's like, do what? You want to bless this? Like, okay, sure. Chad's got Jesus. Um, it's just, it's weird. And so you'll see these tensions start to rise within family as well. Because they're going to see the way that you used to live, and they're going to see the way that you live now. You're not going to joke the same way that your family jokes. You're not going to say the certain things that your family says. Some families say the most racist things ever, and you aren't saying them anymore. Now you're seen as someone who's stuck up. You're the holier than thou. Oh, I'm so sorry. Didn't realize you found Jesus. It's going to cause separation and conflict. It's also that one where it's going to cause, where I think it's just, it's really difficult is, is for those of you who are single in the dating world, this is difficult to live for Jesus. This is really, really, really tough because you have to have a higher standard. It might cost you a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend. It might cost you, uh, it might cost you influence and people might look at you differently because you have certain standards and morals and values People won't like you when you follow Jesus. There will be conflict. But this conflict, what I'm not telling you to do is to go stir up conflict in your life. What I'm not telling you to do is go seek out conflict because you can't have peace if you don't have conflict. So I'm just going to make as much conflict so then I can have more peace. You're going to go on Facebook and you're going to start blasting people. Conflict, conflict, conflict. No, you're just being a jerk. Like, that's not... That's not going to give you peace. That's going to give you more conflict. Conflict isn't, we don't have peace just by seeking out meaningless conflict. You asserting yourself is not what brings about peace. Conflict is when you, is, is an act of love. It's when you see the greater good of the person in front of you and you want to seek their flourishing. So you're willing to do whatever it takes to meet the need, to hit the problem. Let me talk to you about it this way. You might have a, a, an argument with a family member 
Um, in the holidays, this comes up all the time. You might have just, your family may have just left, and you're like, thank God, they're gone. <laughs> um, but it, you, the families always have these issues, always have these problems, whether it's a sister, a brother, a mom, a dad, um, you know, whatever it is, there's, family tends to have a lot of issues, a lot of conflict, a lot of struggle. But what we see is that there's a the classic way of handling it, which is let's pretend things don't, uh, that the issue doesn't exist. Um, that's, that can be seen as like the mature way of handling conflict, right? If I pretend that the issue isn't there, that there isn't an issue, then I'm being seen as like the mature person. But that's not dealing with conflict. That's not actually being loving. What you're doing is you're creating a heart of bitterness that's only going to grow over time. You're creating a heart of resentment that will only grow over time. When we don't deal with conflict in love, when we don't embrace conflict in love, we won't receive peace. The love is the key part. The love is the key part. Because this is a heart issue. We could think theoretically, okay, peace, conflict, peace, conflict. But without love, it's all meaningless. It's when you lovingly step into the awkwardness. It's when you lovingly step into the uncomfortable. It's when you lovingly step into the brokenness that then you can receive peace. And the greater the conflict that you step into, the greater the peace you're going to experience. So we see that conflict is among people, but not only is it among people, it's within people. So what, this is what I mean by conflict within people. Conflict within you is going to create confusion. Conflict is hard. We see this actually in the life of Mary. Mary is probably one of the most favored uh, characters in all of the Bible because she's renowned for her faithfulness, her wisdom, her devotion, her willingness, willingness to suffer. We see remarkable traits in, in Mary. Mary is amazing. But there's a part in Scripture where we see Mary not get it. In Mark, there's a point where Jesus is ministering to people, and this is during his, his ministry, um, much later in his life, and, G and Mary doesn't get it. Mary, along with her children, go over and try to get Jesus and pull him away from the people he's ministering to. Jesus, you're being crazy. You need to come home. There's dinner on the table. You need to eat with us. Mary actually tried to obstruct Jesus' ministry at one point in her life. She didn't get it. Think about that. Mary tried to stop the ministry of salvation of Jesus. It creates confusion. Sometimes what God has called us to doesn't make sense. Sometimes the ministry that we have been called to do won't make sense, and it's going to create confusion within you. It's going to seem like insanity, but really it's the most sane thing that could ever be possible because without it, there would be no salvation. If Jesus had left, then we wouldn't be saved. So sometimes what we're called to creates confusion. But there's also inner turmoil. There's an inner turmoil that happens because we're all geared, we're all designed to have this desire, this motive, this, this function of being competent and being able to fix our own problems. We all desire to be competent, to be seen as competent, and we all desire to be able to fix our own problems. 
And this is what I mean by this. For those of you, you might be trying to prove yourself. Your life has been spent trying to prove yourself as capable and competent. You might be still trying to prove yourself to your parents. You might be in your 60s and are you still trying to prove yourself to your parents that you're successful, that you're capable, that you made the right decisions, that you married the right person, that you did whatever. You're trying to prove that you're competent in life. We have this desire to prove that we're competent. But we also have this desire to fix our own problems, to think that we are God to save ourselves. This inner turmoil is the identification of the problem. First is repentance, and then it's submission. This is hard. Because repentance means I have a problem. We have to admit things that we don't want to admit. We have to acknowledge things that we would rather go, un- go forgotten. We have to bring to light things that we wish no one would know. It's admitting that we are broken. There is a problem, and the problem is me. That's, it creates this inner turmoil, this discomfort. We have to deal with the fact that we are the problem. Not only that, we have to deal with we're the problem, we have to repent, but we also have to submit. We have to, we have to identify the fact that we are the problem and we can't do anything about it. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We, the problem is beyond you. It's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. And it creates confusion and inner turmoil. Because where's the hope? I can't do it. And neither can I. Neither can you. So we see that without conflict, there's no peace. Conflict is essential. Conflict is necessary. Conflict is, is, it goes hand in hand with peace. We don't experience true peace without experiencing the conflict to get there. But conflict is an act of love because we see that through Jesus. Jesus is the greatest act of love to us. He took the ultimate conflicts that we could experience the ultimate peace with God. He took the ultimate conflicts that you and I could experience the ultimate peace with God. So we see that, the, that for Christmas, for, for this, that the, the cost is the peace. We see peace, that peace is possible and that peace is accessible. We also see that the conflict, that there's conflict among people and there's conflict within people. There's conflict among us and within us. But now we see the cost, the cost of Christmas. And this is, this is the last part. This is the final verse. It's the, the sword will pierce your own soul too. The sword will pierce your own soul too. Now this part, this is the part of, of the declaration of Simeon that, that I'm sure Mary was like, eh, I'd rather not. I'd rather not experience that. I'd rather not embrace that. I'd rather not hear that. But this is what it means. So go back with me to the, to the sacrifices that I talked about a moment ago, okay? So the price for Mary to have the purification sacrifice and the price for Jesus to have the dedication and redemptive sacrifice was a, a dove and a lamb. But they didn't have enough to buy the lamb because lambs were expensive. But doves were a lot cheaper. So they bought two doves. Here's the thing. They had the lamb with them. They had the lamb. God provided the lamb. His name is Jesus. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the sacrificial lamb that covers the sin, that purifies us, and that redeems us. Jesus is the lamb. So we can have peace because of his conflict. We can have salvation because of his suffering. We can have grace because of the judgment that was poured out on him. He is the lamb. 
They went in there thinking, we are poor, but they were richer than they ever imagined. They had Jesus. In the garden, when Adam and Eve were cast out because of their sin in Genesis chapter 3, they were blocked off from eternal life. At that moment, they experienced the effects of death. Eternal life was no longer accessible. The tree of life was blocked, and now they experience life with a finite end. And what was, what's wild here is that the, the angel that was set up to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden was, was armed with a flaming sword. Jesus took that sword so that we could enter the garden and experience real life. Jesus took the cost of the cross so that you could experience the benefits of the garden. He took the payment so that you could experience the blessing. It's because of this purpose. It's because of this mission. It's what we see of what Jesus came to do from the very beginning. It's always been salvation through suffering. Salvation through suffering. Peace through conflict. Grace through judgment. Always. So if you think you can have peace without conflict, Jesus didn't. If you think that you can have salvation without suffering, Jesus didn't. If you think that you can have grace without judgment, Jesus didn't. So what does that mean for us? It means that we either lovingly respond in acceptance or rejection. Because this, this is what God tells us throughout the, the Gospels. Jesus says to his disciples, if you, if those who, who identify with me before men, I will identify with you before my Father. But those who reject me before men, I will reject before you. I will reject you before my Father. We see that, that this conflict that Jesus has is a conflict of love. If someone were ridiculing my wife and I stepped in, that would be an act of love. And if I didn't, I would hear a lot about it. There would be conflict either way. <laughs> conflict would happen. But it, what it shows is the priority of my loves. St. Augustine talks about this, that we have a hierarchy of loves in us. And when it's misaligned, we see it affect everything else for the negative. When I love my job more than my family, my family suffers. When I love myself more than I love others, they suffer. And so do I. But when our loves are aligned properly, when our loves are ordered correctly, we see that it actually brings life to all of the loves. When we love God because of his love for us, it affects the way that we love other people. We are willing to embrace the sacrifice. We're willing to embrace the, the cost. We're willing to embrace the conflict because of the proper order of our loves. So when we experience the love of God, we're able to love others correctly. When we experience the sacrifice of God, we're able to sacrifice for others. When we experience the conflict that God experienced, we're able to embrace conflict to, to receive peace. We're able to be peacemakers because Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. And here's what Jesus has that none of us ever had. We are never alone. But Jesus experienced his back turned by the Father. Jesus experienced pure, alone loneliness we will never experience. You will always go through, you will always go through any valley, any suffering, any conflict, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit with you. You have God with you because of Jesus. Jesus experienced loneliness for you so that you will never have to experience loneliness without him. Jesus experienced the cross so that you could experience salvation.
And now we get to pick up our cross daily and follow him. So now we're left with this signpost in the road, the fork. Are we following Jesus or are we following ourselves? Are we pursuing the world? Are we pursuing Jesus or are we pursuing the world? That's what he came. That was his mission from the very beginning. That is the birth of Christmas. That is the hidden cost of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you saw us and you loved us. God, that you experienced the ultimate conflicts that we could experience ultimate peace. God, that you experienced ultimate sufferings that we could experience salvation. God, thank you that at the very beginning, you came with a purpose and a mission. It didn't unfold over time, but God, from the very beginning, you came to seek and save the lost. You came to, to allow peace for the broken and for the, for the outcasts, God. You allowed us to receive the benefit of your blessing by experiencing the wrath of judgment. Thank you, Lord. Praise in your name. Amen.